Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Afghanistan may seem like the forever war, even more so for the Afghans than the U.S., which has been fighting the Taliban since the fall of 2001, only weeks after 9-11. But for the Afghans, it goes back to December 1979, when the Soviet Union invaded the country, only to run into the tough-as-nails Mujahideen fighters, supported by the U.S. It was a faction of the Mujahideen and other Islamic fighters who created the Taliban in the early 90s, grabbing power in Kabul in 96 before getting bounced after the U.S. invasion. Could peace finally be on the horizon? To discuss this, The Crisis Next Door is joined by Courtney Cooper, International Affairs Fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. Courtney, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. There have been reports that the U.S. has reached out to the Taliban for talks. How critical is this development? Jason, I think this is a really important development in the history of the conflict. As you know, we're coming up on nearly 17 years of a military presence in Afghanistan. And for years, several, I'd say most Afghanistan experts have come to the conclusion that that really a political settlement and negotiations leading to a political settlement is really the only way to end the war. Uh, All sides have acknowledged that it's not a conflict that can be won militarily. And realistically, all sides are engaged in a, in a bit of a military stalemate. And so even though prospects for political settlement may seem daunting or, or, or low, um, realistically, a, a negotiations are more plausible than any kind of battlefield victory and therefore is really the only uh, constructive way to move forward. What would the Afghan government in Kabul require for a peace accord? And what would the Taliban require? That's a good question, and I think a lot of that remains to be seen and hashed out throughout the course of negotiations. I mean, negotiations uh, for a conflict like this, that really it's not just 17 years of conflict that all sides are, are trying to reconcile, but there's decades of, of conflict that have affected Afghanistan. So I, I would expect that any negotiation period could take years. Uh, in terms of red lines, um, the U.S. government has talked about several issues in, in the way of end conditions. For example, the United States has often made clear that it would accept any outcome, any negotiation outcome that resulted in a cessation of violence, the Taliban ceasing any ties to international terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, and finally, the acceptance of an Afghan constitution uh, to, go- to govern the country. I think those are the key end states, but realistically, the United States has often affirmed that it will be an Afghan-led process, and really the, the future of Afghanistan will be decided among Afghans. So, you know, it's not for the United States to really ascribe what that political outcome will look like between the different Afghan groups. In terms of the Afghan government's role, I mean, I think they're primarily seeking a cessation of violence. They, they want to end the insurgency. An incredible amount of money goes towards supporting Afghan security forces that really could be invested in development and education and health 
Is there consensus on anything between the Taliban and the Afghan government, whether it's the sovereignty of Afghanistan or the role of Islam in Afghan society? Do they do they see an equal terms in any areas within Afghan society? I think there is a possibility that the Taliban and current members of the Afghan polity could work together. After all, they're all Afghans. They're Afghan politicians, and uh, you know, in some ways. Some happen to be employing military and armed means in order to pursue their political objectives. But in terms of the current political calendar, it's important to remember that Afghanistan is coming up on a major political contest. Uh, Elections were announced to take place in April of 2019. That's April 20th of next year. So there will be a new government. So it is President Ghani right now who's talking about peace talks with the Taliban, but it could be a different government that's in power next year. Um, I think regardless of who's in power, all Afghans are eager for an end to the conflict. And so I don't think that that's a major sticking point. I think the U.S. role and support for talks is one of the most important elements there. And the last point I'll make on that is just thinking about previous peace processes in Afghanistan. The Afghan government completed a peace process with Hezbi Islami, uh, Golbadin, led by Hekmatyar. Golbadin, a insurgent faction that uh, had been at conflict with the government and with the United States for years. And the leader of this faction was one of the most notorious and hated men in Afghanistan. And the fact that he was able to return to Afghanistan and, and rejoin the mainstream Afghan polity was something that very few people could expect uh, or could envision before it happened. And the fact that it has, I think, shows that it is possible to make peace with your adversaries. You just have to put in the effort and you have to believe that it's possible. What is the situation on the ground? What, what does the Afghan government control versus the Taliban? And you mentioned stalemate earlier. Uh, does it look like there's any chance for either side to gain a military advantage? No, I don't think there's really a realistic prospect that either side can gain a military advantage. I think both sides are pretty squarely locked into a military stalemate that has at some times seemed to be trending in the favor of the Afghan government, at other times uh, been seen to be favoring the Taliban. You know, the latest figures in terms of territory and population control are often captured in the regular quarterly reports published by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And I think one of the more recent reports suggested that the government controlled at least 55 to 60 percent of the Afghan population in terms of territory, and the Taliban controlled outright 10 to 15 percent, and the rest of the country was contested. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say that they're locked in a stalemate, and, and an increase in military effort on one side or the other isn't actually going to really change that, which is why all sides have really started looking towards negotiations as the as the next most important step in resolving the conflict. The U.S. military has been targeting opium production sites in Afghanistan with airstrikes, hoping to squeeze a main revenue stream for the Taliban. But the Wall Street Journal is reporting that those strikes aren't having the desired effect. Does that strengthen the Taliban's hand in negotiations? I don't think that strengthens the Taliban's hand in negotiations. Um, you know, a lot of different actors are benefiting from opium production in Afghanistan. Obviously, the Taliban is one of those groups. But ultimately, I think the Taliban is the insurgency. And when you come to the negotiating table, it's, it's the Afghan government has, that has the preponderance of control. It's, it also has the backing of the United States and a large NATO coalition. So 
so really whatever the Taliban gains from opium production is unlikely to really tilt the scale at the table where it actually matters. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about Afghanistan and the potential for peace with the Taliban. And discussing this with us is Courtney Cooper, International Affairs Fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. There are several international players with interest in Afghanistan, Russia, Iran, China, and Pakistan. How are those countries affecting the potential peace process in Afghanistan? separate from the NATO coalition that is there to support the Afghan government and engage in train advice assist uh, and support Afghan security forces. You have a lot of regional powers, uh, Afghanistan's neighbors, that also have engaged in Afghan politics and this issue of peace and reconciliation in different ways. Um, Also, there are overlapping interests in the region that may not perfectly align with U.S. interests in the region. Um, you know, some of Afghanistan's major neighbors like China or Iran, Pakistan, Russia even, these are all groups the United States has taken a little bit more of a competitive approach with in the last year. Yet these are all groups that have also stated, you know, and affirmed their desire for a peaceful outcome in Afghanistan. To some extent, each of these groups have also taken steps to engage on the issue of peace and reconciliation in different ways. Russia spearheaded a process starting at the end of 2016, bringing together regional neighbors to talk about the issue of peace and reconciliation in Afghanistan. The United States did not participate in that process, for example. Um, And then Afghanistan itself started its own process, the Kabul process, and the first meeting took place last year in June, and you had 25-some-odd countries and international organizations come together and affirm the importance of of peace in Afghanistan. So you have all these overlapping layers of countries and regional interests, um, both in the immediate region and also the broader international community. What kinds of relationships are those neighboring countries, such as China and Iran and Russia, building with the Taliban? Jason, I'd say that's an it's a little bit of an open question. There obviously has been press reports about Iranian and Russian engagement with the Taliban. Obviously, uh, it's well known the Taliban senior leaders reside on Pakistani soil. Um, but realistically, I think for the most part, most of these regional neighbors engage with the Taliban in a political sense in terms of, you know, they're not providing material support that drastically affects the of military balance of power in Afghanistan, but there probably, to some extent, are political engagements, um, hedging of bets between different political actors in Afghanistan, just like a lot of these countries engage with the full array of Afghan power brokers and politicians uh, in Afghanistan, both in the government and outside the government. Pakistan's support of the Taliban is well known. Uh, How critical, then, is the Pakistan-India dispute regarding Afghanistan? I think it's probably an issue that doesn't get enough attention when we're focusing specifically on the conflict in Afghanistan. I think one of Pakistan's primary fears in a in a future Afghan state, particularly a peaceful Afghan state, is that that provides a basis for India to increase its engagement, which fuels Pakistan's fear of encirclement. Um, So I think any constructive engagement of Pakistan with the U.S. strategy on Afghanistan will have to address that issue of Pakistani fears related to India and Afghanistan. How is the role of ISIS in Afghanistan affecting the calculus? We've had recent reports of 
pretty heavy fighting between the Taliban and ISIS. As you note, there have been reports of heavy fighting between the Taliban and ISIS. I think this is one thing that could be explored in the future. Um, you know, how we could collaborate with other Afghan actors, including the Taliban, to uh, address a shared counterterrorism threat, ISIS. Obviously, the Taliban is, a, is an armed militant group. It is engaging in uh, terrorist activity within Afghanistan, but it's also different than ISIS. The Taliban is not a terrorist group. It doesn't have aims beyond Afghanistan in the way that ISIS does. So there probably is some, some area for commonality. Much of the U.S. focus has been on the military situation in Afghanistan. How does the civil side hold up? Is, is the U.S. doing enough to build up the civil side of Afghan society? Jason, I think sometimes the military effort does often overshadow the civilian side, probably because the, the numbers we've invested, both in terms of personnel and in terms of funding, are far greater on the security side than on the civilian side. That said, there are still very, very important programs that the United States supports and finances related to the strengthening of the country and its civil society. Uh, the United States has worked really closely with Afghanistan on elections issues, helping to deepen the democratic tradition in Afghanistan and obviously a, an array of, de of development and, and health projects countrywide. I just think it often gets masked by or overshadowed by the military effort, which obviously has been kind of the most significant and out in front over the last 10 years. How important is confidence building when coming to some sort of agreement on peace when we're talking about a decades-long conflict? I think confidence-building measures are incredibly important, particularly in the current context in Afghanistan. As in most negotiations, confidence-building measures are politically risky, they're often reversible, but they can build a really important amount of goodwill between all sides to help shed some of that mistrust that has built up between sides over decades. Past confidence-building measures in Afghanistan have been fairly divisive, um, you know, including prisoner transfers or prisoner releases, trying to stand up the Taliban office in Doha. That said, it's, it's really important to think about how you can build confidence going forward in order to convince all sides that they have a, they have a real partner for peace at the negotiating table. So, yeah, I think the ceasefire in June was an important demonstration of this confidence. Um, and, and I would expect even before formal negotiations would start that there will be informal talks and that will build confidence between all sides. And, and hopefully we can look forward to other ceasefires taking place in order to continue to build goodwill that all sides are willing to come forward and talk about peace. This war has been going on for decades in Afghanistan. What are your thoughts? Are, are we that much closer to peace now? Are both sides finally exhausted in getting to that point? Or do you think this is something that, that could simply uh, trudge on for many more years? Jason, I unfortunately think it's possible the war could trudge on for many more years. However, I will say there's greater optimism for peace talks now than I think at any point in recent years. And this is for a few key reasons. One, Following Afghan President Ghani's peace offer in February that was widely seen as a very generous offer and, and generous invitation to bring the Taliban in without preconditions and really start good-faith negotiations. Since that time, there's been a succession of international and religious conferences calling for an Afghan peace process. There have been um, really remarkable grassroots efforts, such as the Helmand Peace Marchers, that have sprung up and, and garnered 
international attention. And all of this culminates with a three-day ceasefire in June, which really gave the sense that peace was possible since all sides were willing to lay down remarkably arms for three days without incident. It showed that there was a real desire for peace on all sides. I would say the final point is public signals the United States is willing to take a more active role in advancing talks, as well as discussing the status of foreign forces and U.S. forces, is also something that's new and different and really um, contributing to a lot of encouraging signs that the parties might be able to come together and, and really start talking how to resolve this conflict for the first time in many years. One can only hope. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Jason. We've been talking about the Taliban with Courtney Cooper, International Affairs Fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 